podcast where we discuss all things Snape. Always. Join us as we dive into the world of the bravest man we ever knew in art, fanfic, meta, and more. Obviously. This is Snape-centric with episode 17. In this show, I am joined by special guests called Jerry, Lady Helatrope, and Zigadinus to discuss Snape and coding. Enjoy the show. This is Snape Centric, and I'm here with Bulgeri. Hello. <laughs> and Lady Heliotrope. Hi, how is everyone? And Zigadinus. Dante, hello. Bonjour, bonjour. And these are all talented people, authors, and artists. And we're just fortunate to have them here today. Our uh, topic is Snape and coding. Okay, so first we should probably talk about what coding is. I have it listed as it's things in the subtext rather than overtly portrayed, things like sexuality, gender identity, Jewishness, neurodiversity. So I'm going to jump in and yeah, please suggest that when we talk about coding, we need to talk about two types of coding. Conscious coding, where the author intends you to understand yes. a character in a certain way or a situation in a certain way. And unconscious coding, where the way that the character or a scene or a setting is written is reflects an author's unconscious bias. Yes. Yes, I think that's very true, because you, you will see arguments on Reddit and so on that, oh, it can't be coding because it wasn't the author's intent. But that's... I think we have both kinds in Harry Potter. Yes. Yes, I believe yeah. you're right. As an example of like a conscious coding decision, I think Rita Skeeter is perfect. She is described as being, you know, heavy jawed, having manly hands. She is consciously written to evoke a trans aesthetic, I think. Yes. And in a very negative way, which I think mm -hmm. reflects, of course, Rowling's very turfy attitudes and biases. But I think that Rita Skeeter was deliberately written as a trans character. We are expected to dislike this character. Wow, I never would have picked, put that together. That is a fascinating thing. Can you elaborate more? Okay, so we know that J.K. Rowling has a problem with trans people. We're all agreed on that, yeah? Mm -hmm. Not a surprise. So when you look at the way that Rita is described, she is described as being heavily made up. She's described as having heavy jaws, manly hands. She is aggressive and we are not supposed to like this character. Those two things taken together, the way she's described and the role that she has in the stories it adds up to an unflattering picture of trans people. And we, as the audience, are invited to partake in that interpretation. Uh-huh. Yeah. In no way does Rowling ever come out and deliberately say that Rowling is, or that, <laughs> that uh, <laughs> see, in my head canon, I like to equate the two, Rita Skeeter and Rowling, because I think that, I think that in some ways in writing Rita, Rowling is drawing upon her own, um, <laughs> tendency to bash real people in her life but oh, uh, when we think about when we think about the character of Rita Skeeter in no way does Rowling ever deliberately say that Rita is written as a trans character but we're invited to make that mental leap mm -hmm. so that's one type of coding and then also especially well 
I don't know. I was going to talk a little bit about the history of the term coding. And people like to talk about the Hayes Code, which was basically a self-governing thing among movie producers to in 1930s to prohibit depictions of crime, evil, or sin, including perversion. So, but the fact is that queer coding is hundreds of years old. It's been in literature for ages um, because there's been queer authors all that time that weren't able to openly talk about things. Indeed. I think I saw something on Facebook the other day. I know great source for Facebook about how Sappho literally the island that she purportedly lived on was like sort of Isle of No Dicks or something like that. <laughs> it was very it was it was sort of very subtle that in a way that contemporaries of those who wrote it would have noticed that, but you and I in a modern day context probably would miss it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well Oscar Wilde is another uh, Virginia Woolf, Ellie Dickinson, those are all people who had that hidden in their in their writings. It's interesting to me that when we think about the Renaissance and how Greek and Roman scholars were interpreted in a very uptight and Christian, through a very uptight and Christian lens, mm-hmm. I think this should come as no surprise to anybody that sexuality is very different across cultures. And in ancient Greece and Rome to some extent, mm-hmm. there was a robust culture of male to male sexual interactions and romantic love. Right. So when the Renaissance was trying to find the quote unquote roots of Western civilization by digging up writings of Plato and the other various Greek and Roman Mm -hmm. scholars, they had to wrestle with the fact that these writings included extensive homoerotica and male romantic love. Mm -hmm. So I really think that some of the the very earliest examples we see of quote unquote coding are actually just suppression. Yes. Yeah. I don't know. Well, I guess you could talk about Christianity even. I don't know. This is a long and deep rabbit hole. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know if we really want to go that far. (laughs) In fandom, I think it's safe to say that the phrase coding has been around since the 60s or 70s where people used it to refer to characters that had been written in particular ways as stand-ins for genuine human difference that we see in populations and as Mm -hmm. a unconscious representation. Yeah yeah one of the tropes is called sissifying the villain Mm -hmm. giving uh, queer and trans attributes to the bad guys or gals. <laughs> you can look at Disney, you know, massively consumed by all sorts of people. The Governor Radcliffe, Ursula and the Little Mermaid, Cruella DeVille, they all have trans queer attributes or what's the word besides attributes? I don't. Characteristics. Characteristics. Thank you. <laughs> um, yeah, I think we can even talk about like deliberate and unconscious coding as going in two directions, whether it's meant to be positive or negative. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I don't know. Do we think in general, if we think about the various types of coding that exist in Rowling's work, is there any example of positive coding? Mm-hmm. I don't think so. 
I'm struggling to think of any. I mean, I can think of at least neutral coding where I think that, you know, we do have the example of like Anthony Goldstein as like a token um, Jewish character. Does he show up anywhere as like as a, a character in the books? Does he have a single line in the books? I think he's in the DA um, at one point, but I don't even know that he oh. says anything in particular. I don't remember. Demonstrating that he was clearly a major <laughs> character. I mean, well, <laughs> yeah. I think I'm he was he's a major character. If if I recall correctly, I think he was questioning Harry about what happened. And yeah. and maybe not in a, you know, in a like well, prove it to me, asshole, what kind of way. Yeah, I don't think we can make the argument that. Anthony Goldstein was coded in any way by Rowling. He was retconned. Mm-hmm. I mean, she came out later and said, oh yeah, there's a Jewish character and he's Jewish because he has the name Goldstein, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Coding, I think, is when you can interpret something about a character based on how they are written. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think one one type of coding that exists, which was originally positive, was Nymphadora Tonks. She was written mm-hmm. as an ambiguous character i mean she's literally a metamorph magist right she can switch any part of her features to like not even to take on different human characteristics but she's written explicitly as being able to like change her nose to a pig nose so we got we got cross species uh transformation (laughs) of bodily features i think it's interesting that tonks never switches to masculine features ever true so I think a lot of people looked to Tonks's character as being like a really good representation early. They looked to her character as being a really good representation of mm-hmm. non-binarism or of potentially even a character deliberately written as trans. And yet we mm-hmm. never see Tonks take on any male features other than having a very gender neutral name. And then mm-hmm. Tonks's arc in the story is to be feminized. She becomes a mom and she's suddenly Nymphadora and then she dies. Right. So it started off well and as everything <laughs> in Harry Potter rapidly degraded. I will say that my academic understanding of these concepts is a little bit weaker than most. And so I am, forgive me if I'm taking more of a seat back as I'm listening and learning. Oh, that's, that's fine. You know, it's, I know, I, I know the conversation isn't flowing. You know, why well, don't we, but- since this is, this is kind of a, a topic where we are all being very careful not to say anything that would harm each other, because we know that these communities have encountered so much harm. Why don't we just spend like a couple minutes just talking about where our background is and where we come into this? I think that mm-hmm. um, building relationships and being really open and honest and forthright with with listeners as well, because we're also in relationship with potential listeners. I think that's a good place to start this conversation. We've jumped in like really deep and academic right off the beginning, but we haven't spent Mm -hmm. that time to say like, this is who we are. And this is why we're talking about this. Right. Okay. Well, I'll start. I'm a, uh, I guess, cishet female. There's, uh, I guess I'll just say that I'm an ally. And I... I suppose I'll go next. So okay. I, my pronouns are she, her for the moment. That may change. I've been saying that for years, but I haven't really acted on anything. But I do identify as slightly more than an ally in the trans community, but haven't really figured that out yet. 
which is very funny because I spend the majority of my time trying to help trans folks become their most fulfilled selves. I'm sorry, my doggies are squeaking a brand new Valentine's Day squeak toy. <laughs> so that's why I keep muting myself. Okay, and Gold Jerry? Okay. Um, I'm, I'm a trans man. My, hum- my pronouns are he, him. And yeah, I just, I'm just here because, uh, I don't know, I feel like that I relate, I can relate to Snape a lot as a trans person. So it's a very interesting topic. Yeah, and I sh- really appreciate you joining us today. Thank you. Okay, that leaves you, Dr. Zig. Haha. <laughs> yeah. So I identify as a particular Indigenous gender in the understanding that my community has multiple genders in white European Western contexts, I say that I am non-binary. I am a female presenting person, but I do not identify as female. My pronouns are they, them. Um, And in terms of sexuality, I am asexual. I think one of the fun things that we get to break down in this conversation is that there's a difference between gender and sexuality. Gender is a social construct. Sexuality Mm -hmm. is who you're interested in mashing genitals with or not. And biological <laughs> sex, biological <laughs> sex is the presentation of your genitals and what kind of gametes you house in those genitals. And even a, even in a, a biological sense, a strictly biological sense, I want to make it very clear to everybody that sex, biological sex is a spectrum. I mean, I'm not just talking about like male intersex female spectrum of biological sex. There's also like microchimerism um, where people genetically have XX and XY chromosomes in various parts of their body or can even be XXY. So biological sex is by no means like a binary reality. Regardless of what certain authors say. (laughs) Yes. uh, I don't know if we need to talk about JRK's hate right now. So We'll yeah, I don't know. I'm very burned out on talking about JKR and her turfiness. Um, I feel like it is all the people that are in alignment with the ideal like understanding of what is actually going on with that. Mm-hmm. Like everybody who has a w- willingness to listen seem to have listened. And oh. I mean, this is a podcast for us. Uh, it, I, yeah. If I can offer a vote, I yes. would like to vote for dispensing with I would like to say death of the author and just go go elsewhere, mm-hmm. JKR. That's my vote. Yeah. I second the motion. Absolutely. If we're going to de-platform yes. somebody, we have to stop giving them a platform. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, okay. Well, let's uh, start talking about Snape, our favorite person. Yeah. And so I will be the first to say I do not believe that Snape was intended to be coded as femme or as trans. As far as JKR goes, I think that it's pretty clear where the origin of Snape is, is John Nettleship. And well, that's kind of that, who by all accounts, John Nettleship was an absolutely lovely human, but not trans. And so, but I absolutely adore and love and embrace the headcanon of a trans Snape in any direction. Honestly, I have written Snape in many different configurations, uh, both on this profile and my NSFW profile. (laughs) Yeah, I think that what Rowling was doing in writing Snape was trying to 
create a villainous character. And so this is why Mm -hmm. Snape is Jew coded and why he's trans coded is because she's Mm -hmm. looking for attributes that she feels are negative. Now, I'm not suggesting that she's an anti-Semite or, um, well, we know she's anti-trans, but I'm not suggesting she's Mm -hmm. an anti-Semite. It's just that so much of British literature has the villain portrayed as somebody with uh, stereotypically Jewish features. And so she's just drawing upon that literary tradition of what a bad guy looks like. Mm -hmm. And so she's also pulling female characters and attributes and applying them to Snape because I think she's actually a raging misogynist a good close reading of her work doesn't find a lot of a lot of positive representation for women she does deliberately mock Snape Um, she puts him in a dress twice once Mm -hmm. through Neville's Bogart and once when he's wearing what Petunia mocks him as is like maybe his mother's clothes yes his uh, smock like shirt that he was wearing when he first encountered Lily and Petunia. Yeah. And I mean, I think this speaks to the author finding it humorous or finding it funny that a male gendered character would be dressed in female clothes and inviting us to mock male gendered or male presenting people who dress in stereotypically female clothes. Mm-hmm. Frankly, I, I'm frankly- down. I'm down for men dressing in dresses because they look better than most women. It's not fair, but they do. Yeah, that's the reality. That's true. <laughs> no, I frankly, in my my readings of everything, I did not even pick up on that. The mother's smock, blouse, etc. I genuinely had no clue about that. So that when I saw yeah. that on the outline, I was like, what? What is this? I don't remember this. I feel like I have an yeah. encyclopedic knowledge of Snape. What the heck? And I guess I, I attribute this to my like, autisticness I just did not pick up on that even in my readings like wow there's actually there's actually a slang term girls blouse which means like a sissy so we could even wonder if if that had anything to do with putting him in the blouse when he was a child yes you know the other thing is actually I'm thinking it might have been a reference to like maybe what we've never seen any like wizarding young young children you know how like in the in the 1700s they would just give all babies and toddlers like identical outfits? Oh, true. And the so I'm, dresses till they were five or something like that. Exactly. And maybe as Sev was like really skinny and awkward, maybe just and also if his mom was depressed and not doing so great maybe mm-hmm. he maybe there's certain elements of the wardrobe that he had that were holdovers from maybe that age and uh something mm-hmm. like that I, that's that's a thought that I have that takes gender kind of out of account but also takes it in a mm-hmm. new direction maybe I don't know sorry I think actually we can also bring in the realization that Snape was very very poor I mean, his family was impoverished. We have that canonically. And speaking as somebody from an impoverished background, I mean, I wore clothes that were boys' clothes and girls' clothes and older people's clothes. I mean, I went to school in my grandmother's clothes for how many years because they happened to fit. The reality Mm -hmm. of being impoverished is that you don't go to the mall and buy things that actually look good on you. You just make sure you're covered. Mm -hmm. So I can really see like, Eileen having rummaged in the charity bins for clothes and been like, this fits. Right. I kind of think maybe it 
could signify a little bit of neglect because she didn't try to transform it. I guess, you know, they're transfiguring clothes all the time in the books that she could have made it less girly if she cared. Does she have magic, though? We have when we think about Merope Gaunt, who lost her magic. um, It's very possible that because Eileen was in an abusive situation, maybe she lost her magic. We don't know how magic works in Harry Potter canonically. Well, she could have used a needle and thread either, you know. So anyway, yeah. Um, Maybe, uh, Maybe Snape liked that it was a girl's shirt. We don't know. We have no way of knowing that. But I think what is interesting from like a authorial perspective is that we have Petunia mocking him for wearing what she thinks looks like a girl's shirt. And Mm -hmm. this is a source of mockery where we're again, as the audience invited to consider this something worth mocking. Yeah. Petunia doesn't mock him for wearing something that looks old or looks frayed or looks poor. She mm-hmm. jumps onto that straight onto the gender train. Yeah. And it resonates really nicely with like from uh from the perspective of repetition in writing, it resonates mm-hmm. with Neville dressing his bogart in his grandmother's clothes. Yes. And I kind of wonder why Lupin chooses that particular way to embarrass Snape. Yeah, because it's very much Remus Lupin who suggests that. Mm-hmm. It's not something that Neville comes up with on his own. No. Which is actually really cruel of Lupin to be weaponizing a child. Yes. Absolutely. And and doing so, I guess that, that sort of suggests how much Lupin actually did maybe play a role in the bullying. Because it just, we don't see a lot of that, but we do see this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which could be considered bullying i i would anyway yeah but in terms of um more unconscious or conscious coding of snape's Mm -hmm. character he is written as frequently being out of control of his emotions yes and this is something that only the female the other female characters in the books do Mm -hmm. is to lose control of their emotions i challenge you to find any male other other than Snape any male character who's not in control of their emotions oh you shouldn't say <laughs> well I mean there's rage caps Harry but I mean yeah. that's just deliberately <laughs> written to be ragey that's that's what I was thinking of <laughs> I mean yeah. we're just ignoring <laughs> Harry because Harry is an author insert yes mm-hmm. I mean I don't... suppose there's there's Hermione but I mean sorry that was not your point your point is that okay. yeah like Female characters Mm -hmm. lose their cool in Harry Potter and Snape does. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, Dumbledore once. Harry didn't put your your name in the goblet of fire. But even that, like it wasn't, it wasn't outsized. Yeah. When when we look at Prisoner of Azkaban and where Snape has lost his moment of vengeance against his tormentors, Mm -hmm. Harry describes him as looking quite demented he he goes off so mm-hmm. also then there's more there's more subtle things like snape is described as hissing or sibilant or soft spoken yeah mm-hmm. and he he cries in when he finds lily's letter in grimald place mm-hmm. again that expression of emotion mm-hmm. we've from harry we know that 
crying is something to be mocked. He mocks Cho Chang for crying all the time. Mm -hmm. So again, the author is inviting us to look upon expression of emotion as something potentially worth mocking. Mm -hmm. Uh, Just bringing up the nickname of the nickname Snivellus, meaning crying and being emotional Mm -hmm. is another example. Mm -hmm. Yeah, those... uh... And I think Snivellus was originally like just uh, a play on his name, perhaps, because he wasn't crying on the train when James stuck him with that tag. Mm -hmm. But that's true. They use that for him over the years. Right. I'm just thinking it was conscious of um, the author to do that, though, because of Mm -hmm. the meaning of the word snivel. So she was I think it was a conscious thing to sissify him more. Yeah. And therefore render Snape more loathable yes yes he's more loathable but why do we love him i know well (laughs) (laughs) so many so so many reasons we yeah we're not that's not the show (laughs) yeah and then deep in terms of like calling upon the greater canon of literature in terms of coding snape teaches potions mm-hmm. potions and poisons cauldrons those are all associated with female representations of witchcraft right and that was a bailey sarian reference it's okay sorry <laughs> what was that <laughs> i i understand that reference i'm just just saying a <laughs> uh, uh, famous potions or poisons mistress who sold cosmetics to women who were in abusive relationships in the renaissance era to uh gently extricate said women from said abusive relationships oh, oh. <laughs> i'll send well, you the link later <laughs> yeah poison is considered a woman's weapon mm-hmm. rather than a man's a man will just use brute force well it's because and- they can't physically speaking except mm-hmm. right it frequently is sort of not seen as being that strong yet Mm -hmm. more sort of hyper sort of feminization as a means of disempowering and disenfranchising Mm -hmm. yeah which is yet another thing associated with poverty i mean you're just gonna be like more you're not gonna be like as like strong physically if you haven't had an adequate nutrition growing up it's just a thing right yes when he got pantsed i don't really like that term it was more of a sexual assault yeah, I have so many things to say about Snape's that. I, memory. Yeah. I am a strong proponent of understanding that scene from the perspective of sexual violence. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's because, yes, if, if that was a girl, it would obviously be sexual assault. So uh, I don't know how some people, oh, okay, I'm not going to go there talking about the Marauders. <laughs> that's a different <laughs> show. Um, yeah. And then, the one time Sirius calls Severus his Lucius Malfoy's lapdog. Ah, oh, that's such a great moment where Snape that's is just like, moment. he just takes it in stride and he's like, yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Speaking of dogs. <laughs> oh, gosh. Wow, that uh, that sounds like a really interesting interaction thinking about it, thinking about Sirius being, you know, a dog. Like calling someone else a lapdog is an insult. Like, whoa, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, a, a, a big dog calling someone a little dog. Uh, I don't know. Is he going to grab him by the neck and shake him? 
He probably would if he could. I just like that entire interaction so much because Snape has zero fucks to give and he, the level of condescension and like cold loathing he displays to where Sirius in that moment is just perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was also thinking about the fact that Snape is the only person who can fly without a broom and it's possible that maybe the broom could be taken as a phallic symbol that Snape doesn't doesn't have because he can fly on his own and I don't know I just thought that was an interesting idea yeah yeah I I think that vibes with my understanding of the character for sure mm-hmm. yeah and I think we do have pretty good evidence canonical evidence that there's a culture that wizarding culture around understanding wands and brooms as phallic symbols i mean the twins make jokes about wands as being phallic and so i think that that sits pretty comfortably in my head canon anyways and it's interesting that if if we're talking about phallic symbols snape doesn't use a wand either and Rowling explicitly identifies wands as being phallic symbols in the wizarding mm-hmm. world yes he, re- he refers to foolish wand waving in his first speech mm-hmm. and we know that he, ma- he is uh, a master of wandless magic yes that's that's really cool yeah i love i love that thought as being both canonical and in support of theories related to phallic stuff like oh i can't even be you know bothered to to deal with a wand or a broom those things just Mm -hmm. make me uncomfortable as a I as I'm thinking like that's the sort of rationale I'm coming up with the story I'm telling myself a a Snape story Mm -hmm. okay so we've talked a lot about Snape's gender in the understanding that like gender is a social construction do we do we want to go in the route of talking about his sexuality I mean I don't know if there's anything to really talk about because we don't have any evidence for sexuality but mm-hmm. um, all we really have is that you know Snape loved Lily and thus mm-hmm. the we can always dive deeper into the question of okay what does this exactly mean <clears throat> because it doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily this translate to a sexual kind of love you know the from the Aristotelian mm-hmm. perspective there's um, Eros which is, you know, physical carnal love. There's agape, which is sort of love of humanity. Um, and uh, eros, God, what's, what's the one in the middle? Pathos. Yeah, I, c- I could see it so many different ways. All it seems to imply in the text is that the love he feels is very pure. That's why yeah, we he has such rolling. a beautiful Patronus. We have Rowling saying that it's a courtly love. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. So, so I, I don't see any reason in text to disagree with that assertion on her part. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and that then, it's more of a symbol than anything else. Mm-hmm. Right. You okay. mentioned his Patronus. That's another way in which he is, in which he's transcoded. Yes. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it's oh, so much Patronus stuff. Yeah. I think it's interesting that Harry his own Patronus is a stag. He mm-hmm. thinks it's his it, originally a prisoner of Azkaban. He thinks he's seeing his father and his father's Patronus. Do we know mm-hmm. what James's Patronus was? We don't. I don't think we have any evidence for that. We don't. Um, yeah, I, I don't. We also don't know what Lily's Patronus was, but we do know that Snape's is a doe, which mm-hmm. is weird because sorry, it's just weird for me because we're invited to think of 
James as representing a stag, because of course that was his, his animagus form. Mm-hmm. And then Lily is a doe because obviously a stag needs a doe. I don't know. <laughs> if you want to split hairs, they're not even the same species, I guess. A, yeah. a doe would be the opposite would be a buck. Yeah. So, Although that could be like, well, that, could, no that could be a British thing. Well, um, actually, the female form of, a, you know, going with stag would be a hind, I guess. True, true. So, uh, so yeah, splitting hairs. Yeah. Do animagus forms, is this, your Patronus going to be the same thing? I, I don't see any reason why it would be. Well, yeah, in, in the Harry Potter mystery game that I was playing, I was, I had a tiger Patronus, but I was able to transform into a cat, a little cat, you know, house cat. (laughs) So I don't know. We can't take that as canon, but it's kind of funny. Yeah. There's all kinds of weirdness around there, Mm -hmm. but we are invited to think of Mm -hmm. James Patronus as reflecting Harry's mother. And in that way, it kind of puts Snape in a, a surrogate mother position or a role in mm-hmm. in the architecture of the story right if Dumbledore is his surrogate father or surrogate grandfather Snape is mm-hmm. very definitely positioned as his surrogate mother yes I guess Hagrid is also positioned as a surrogate father yeah and and Sirius to a small extent yeah aside from Sirius's emotional instability which granted mm-hmm. okay so we've got I know that we have been processing emotional stability as sort of a coding of gender. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm like, the I think the, the biggest exception really is serious. That's the one that I keep getting stuck on is the sort of contrast between the two of them, Snape and Sirius. Yeah, mm-hmm. I don't I don't think we have serious like going off the rails in terms of like out of control aggression, do we? or out of control rage, or like every being out of control. Sirius's emotional instability is more like petulance and and. Uh, but what about what what ended, you know, Sirius's actual life ended because of he, him going off in a rage to the Department of Mysteries, right? I think we're expected to consider that heroic. <laughs> okay. How about... <laughs> I mean, I... I, I... <laughs> Uh, that's funny. <laughs> it also, it ties in for me, it ties in with what she does to all of her characters as she's about to kill them off. She demonizes them, which may speak mm-hmm. to like a personality disorder on her part, but <laughs> yeah. Um, g- going back to Sirius, there, there was when he grabbed Ron and broke his leg, pulling him through into the tunnel to the shrieking shack. He, I would think that that would be rage, but I don't know if we have any evidence for that because yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's kind of a Ramus, little, Ramus Lupin is little able thing. To, yeah. Ramus Lupin is able to like hold him back for killing Pettigrew. Mm-hmm. Like he's, they're able to discuss it rationally. That's true. Okay. Well, um, let's see. I mean, yeah, if there's... there was a point in Canon for us to see like out of control serious, that would have been it. And we don't mm-hmm. see out of control serious <laughs> in that situation. We see him being controlled by Ramus Lupin. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So um, you can really see, you know, when Snape goes back to Dumbledore after the Potters are killed and ends up taking up Lily's place as Harry's protector, that 
could be seen as feminine. Yeah, again, harkening back to my earlier comments about Snape being like a surrogate mother to Harry, that is, he is positioned that way. You might also take him as protecting Draco as another instance of that, taking up because Narcissa couldn't protect him herself. So that's another instance. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yes. Oh, and you came up with this other Gulgeri and I worked on the outline together. The Sectum Sempra. The the counter curse described as almost a lullaby. Yeah, that's, I mean, there's just so many different things. His uh, his handwriting being described as effeminate, I'm pretty sure was was oh, this. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. Hermione Hermione says it looks like a girl's writing. Yeah, there's and well, there's also the how he delivers the sword of Gryffindor. It harkens back to Arthurian legend and the Lady of the Lake who delivers the sword to Arthur, and. Yeah. And this lady also brings about Merlin's downfall, which, you know, you could say, oh, okay, Dumbledore, yeah, knock him off the tower. That must have felt good. I'm just kidding. Because, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he, he obviously had some really negative things to think about in order to, to hit Dumbledore hard enough to knock him off the tower. I'm still stuck on, sorry, I, I got like distracted here oh, by okay. thinking about the um, sword in the lake. And a sword is, of course, like it's a very phallic symbol. Oh, and true. a lake is obviously a very feminine symbol. Is there anything anybody wants to say about the uh, queer coding at this point? I, I just wanted to cover a couple other or. Or did we already talk about it? I'm so yeah. I, I mean, I think we've um, we've talked a little pretty extensively about Snape as being transcoded. Where we're talking about gender, I think mm-hmm. queer, in my understanding of most people who uh, take that um, take that word and own it, is that they're mm-hmm. speaking more to sexuality or to perhaps the intersection of sexuality and gender. And okay. so I don't know if. I don't know if we can say that Snape is queer coded because we don't have any evidence for him actually having a sexuality. Yeah, mm-hmm. there is. I don't think anything canonically that suggests where he goes in the schema. Okay. Okay. So having said that, like, I'm, da- I'm down for queer Snape. If people want to headcanon mm-hmm. that or, or write fic, I mean, I'm down for that. There's 5 million percent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, judging from some of the things I've looked at, there's Snape and Harry or Snape and Hermione. There's a little more Snape and Harry out there as far as fic goes. And also the uh, number of downloads on our Snary podcast is a little bit more than for Stomione. I think that's the wonderful thing about Snape is that we can give him so many different faces. Our mutual friend, my witch, refers to Snape as being the little black dress of, of fandom. <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah, good. that resonates for sure. Um, I think one of the things that I really like about writing Snape as a queer person is taking some pansexual vibes in the, like, I have written, one of my favorite fics that I've written on a profile that I'm not going to name is one where... Mm-hmm. Snape actually is with 
uh, Luna, who is trans, but sort of stealth trans. And they're just like mm-hmm. going along. And then all of a sudden it's like, oh, whoa, you've got different equipment than I expected. Oh, yeah. I'm surprised you didn't know. Oh, oh, OK. That makes sense. OK, well, let's roll with it. And I feel like that's very much the sort of I feel like in many ways he feels probably that he can't be that choosy in terms of sexual partners. Mm-hmm. I also am a big fan of the idea of Noblesse Oblige in a relationship with Lucius and the idea that he and Lucius have something going on that's per- that's quite toxic and possibly very sexual. And it might actually not be that toxic. I don't know. But I feel like the the most compelling stories I've read are a toxicish kind of relationship between the two of them that sort of harkens some degree of like platonic or ancient Greek type of relationship with mentor mentee type stuff. These are all my head canons, so there's no evidence. <laughs> this is just all. Yeah, I can uh, really see I can really see Lucius and Snape having a platonic and exploitative relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, just you know, come and sit by me. I, I mean, we have to we think about like how Snape was recruited into the Death Eaters. If we understand the mm-hmm. Death Eaters as a cult, you know, sex is a great way that cults recruit. Yep. We see this over mm-hmm. and over and over again. Mm-hmm. Indeed. And I think some of the earlier polyamory type things were very cultish. And I mean, they still exist. I know of people who have this sort of, I'm going to, you know, bring my partners into my home and we're going to live a cult kind of life. I, I've seen it one too many times. In and the let's polyamory just say that like major religions also have these features. Yeah. So. And it seems like a very compelling way to, you know, you know, hook young people in to like what is functionally a cult through a sort of MLM type of love bombing scheme, which I think that poor Severus would have been extremely vulnerable to love bombing, extremely just being forced to be in a position of like, oh, people really like me. People think I'm talented and smart and all of the things that I've been thinking about myself for my whole life, but nobody's ever appreciated. And Lucius Malfoy thinks this about me. (sighs) Mm -hmm. This is my place. These are my people. Until it isn't. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I have a little headcanon for why Lucius first thought of Snape before he knew his talents and stuff. Was that his father, oh, what was his name? Uh, Abraxas. Abraxas, yeah. Knew Eileen and was like, watch out for this kid. You know, just, you know, told him to kind of, yeah, watch out for him. So. That is a cool idea. That makes a lot of sense and would have, like, I'm sure Eileen really was a spitfire in her day before mm-hmm. the spirit got really knocked out of her. So, right. or assuming that that's the case, which in my head canon it is because it's hard being a poor muggle passing family. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we actually don't have a lot of information about Eileen at all. We know that she was like the head of a gobstones team, and that's all we know about her. Right. Mm-hmm. And yeah, then they're... she gave birth to a murderer. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like to write or read a lot of fanfics where Snape has been closeted for a long time and he's still dealing with all of that because, well, for one, I relate to it, but also I think it's an interesting thing to go along with how he was a double agent and, I don't know, being closeted, being you know, feeling one way and portraying yourself as a different way. 
kind of, you know, those two things kind of parallel each other in my opinion. And I think that's really interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And Snape has like canonically very little capacity for self-reflection and self-awareness. I don't think he really thinks very much about why he's doing the majority of things he does. Yeah. Aside from like some very rigid categories uh, or roles that he has decided he's going to play. So I can absolutely see that, Jerry. Mm-hmm. I also like playing into that. Theoretically, you could see the sort of passion or courtly love for Lily as sort of a being closeted from the self. Namely, well, I have a yeah. crush on Lily that I've had for my past 15 years. So obviously I can't be gay. You know, I might have, you know, dalliances once in a while with whoever happens to be available and willing and interested, but no. Behind the Tesco's. (laughs) Behind the Tesco's. (laughs) Yeah, like to how much, to how much extent could Lily and his courtly love for her be self-protective because it prevented him from having to examine himself? True. Yeah. Yeah. Of course, as far as, uh, okay, I'm going to be crude. It's like the question is, did Snape fuck? We have no evidence for that. We have no evidence for that. The The only thing that I wonder about is that, you know, what were the Death Eaters up to? Oh, well, I was wondering if there's any truth to the being Lucius Malfoy's lapdog or if that's just some thing that Sirius said to make Snape angry, because that could probably be taken in a sexual way. Mm-hmm. That, if it was sexual, that's Snape didn't true. mind. Yeah, there is no evidence either way, obviously. It's a children's series pretty much and yet we have goat there sucking. is sex in it <laughs> oh, i'm sorry what was that shall i repeat it yes, um, please. <laughs> i said and yet we have goat fucking oh <laughs> i mean that's that's mm-hmm. in there so true lord <laughs> and there was harry staying up polishing his wand yeah um, just stupid little things <laughs> well you know i think from from certain i've written Snape as being non-asexual, but I have mm-hmm. a tendency to cast him in an asexual light or oh, yes. low low sexual low sexuality, mostly as a like, well, I've got too much other shit to do. <laughs> like and that being a yes. sort of layer that covers up the sense of deep and pervasive loneliness and sadness um that we sort of see emanating from the character. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, everybody's has different headcanons on it, and many of us have wildly diverging headcanons in our heads. So, uh. I mean, I had canon Snape as being neurodivergent, as being somewhere on the mm-hmm. autism spectrum, and speaking as someone on the autism spectrum, relationships, sexuality, and exploring the intersections of those are a very complicated and to some extent, highly ritualized, but those rituals are not easily studied. Mm -hmm. So if we think about people on the autism spectrum as having to negotiate their lives through algorithms to understand appropriate behaviors in context, I think that Snape would have had a lot of difficulty if he was on the autism spectrum as as I am, or as John Nettleship thought he was. If we Mm -hmm. consider Snape to be somewhere on that spectrum, I think he would have had a lot of difficulty in processing how to even behave in romantic context. Yeah. And that's definitely right. my headcanon as well. And the idea that there's something that just doesn't compute aside from, well, I'm going to, I do acknowledge that there's this 
sort of person who has done amazing things for me. Well, what else can I possibly feel for them but love? And being willing to say that, but also sort of floundering with someone who's actually alive. Like when Lily was alive, I, I do not think that Snape was able to articulate or even understand the degree of affection that he had for her. Mm-hmm. if that makes sense absolutely yeah. yeah I think he would be pretty much lost with like a living breathing person who was attracted to him or vice versa I think if he had sexual encounters they were probably very transactional I think he would have probably been very comfortable with prostitutes because there was like a clear expectation of what was going to happen yeah mm-hmm. I I'm very amused by the HGSS stories where he's like this sexual savant I'm just like <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoy it, but I'm like, nah, <laughs> I, I don't buy it. Not like sex God Snape is just, there's no canonical evidence for sex God Snape. <laughs> no, I prefer the awkward, I, I don't know how to do this. What the hell do I do? Uh, God, I, okay. Oh dear. Things are not going as I expected or thought they should go kind of Snape. I enjoy them all. That's right. I mean, uh, there's some very well written sex god snapes too. <laughs> they're not. They're not all just you know genitals smashing um, or however you said it. Is it bashing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever. That is that is my phrase. Um, yeah. I mean, I think definitely people can write good things in the sense of being able to string interesting sentences together and mm-hmm. good narrative architectures. I just for me it. It breaks my suspension of disbelief when we get sex god Snape without any realistic treatment of the trauma that he brings. I mean, mm-hmm. how do you get from being sexually assaulted by bullies to being a Don Juan sex god? It's, <laughs> it's a hard leap for me. So if, if authors do the work of resolving that and mm-hmm. building their character forward, yeah, I mean, I'm down for that. But quite often what I see in a lot of fic is we go from zero to zero to sexy in like 60 seconds flat. Okay, yeah. And, you know, sometimes that's what you need when you're reading. And sometimes mm-hmm. you need a little bit more and a little bit more exposition and a little bit more like, hang on there. And uh, so I, that's kind of why one of my preferences is to see like or rather when I write Snape typically I give at least five years buffer between 1998 and the setting of the story because I cannot really it's very hard for me to write a sexual Snape in 1998 it takes me it it takes me at least some time for some healing and some grounding to get Snape to be able to possibly enjoy sex and not just be like oh my goodness my feelings are everywhere which I guess in case consultation is one of my primary opposite examples though actually not so much because that whole I think where case consultation will end for which is a story that I've been working on for years at this point I think I forget but that's gonna end probably about five years down the line when Snape is in a new relationship and feeling like maybe moving to someplace like, I don't know, I see like New York City or DC or something. Oh man, you move fast, Lady Helitrope. I just did the math and I've got Snape at like 16 years after and he's finally willing to send Hermione a note. 
to be like, oh. hi, I'm alive. <laughs> well, I would definitely read the hell out of that too. Thanks, There's thanks. 62 chapters of it. <laughs> I've I'm been working on it, it for like seven years now. It's like probably one of the longest running fics out there. Thanks, Thanks, by Venus. We'll have links. And also Case Consultation Severus S by Lady Heliotrope. Also very good. And yeah, thanks. Toblerone by Galgeri is really good too. Ooh, I've enjoyed reading you. all of those. So and we'll have links to all that. And Severus Ish did a, a wonderful survey of the trans Snape literature and came up with about 15 different references. And I will talk about those in a separate segment so very cool yeah nice there's a lot out there i mean i'm down for it yeah okay that sounds cool yeah so we have transnape we talked about neurodivergence the class coding we talked about is poverty obviously his clothing and most likely his speech would be affected yeah yeah i think that the way that he speaks canonically Mm -hmm it betrays his northern origin if you will mm-hmm. it's interesting to me when people write snape they write like a very um received english um he always mm-hmm. has good grammar and he speaks in big words but you know canonically he doesn't do that not always mm-hmm. yeah there are moments where i was surprised by the word choice that jkr used i think the thing that just like struck me as it felt very out of place but I guess it's just because because she was writing somebody who didn't feel in place in many ways, like thinking about the times where Snape uses words that end with E, like to be choosy or to be brainy or brawny. And I'm whenever that happens, for whatever reason, it just it sort of takes me aback for a moment. But I've been very intentionally using those word choices in my fix ever since I noticed that other people have observations on. I, I mean, that is very, very, very granular to notice, but still. I don't notice Snape using Manchester male slang. When he uses slang mm-hmm. and like informal language, it tends to be, if I had to put him in an episode of Coronation Street, I would attribute those lines to one of the female characters. Which granted, I think we're all American here or, you know, USA. Right. Wait, are, unless maybe doctor are you canadian i don't know yeah okay i we're all of northern america so to speak so mm-hmm. none of us are you know quite the same degree of we're not over the pond but so we are looking at things yeah. through that lens mm-hmm. yeah it's i don't know i kind of picture that as he got groomed and everything with the death eaters part of it was learning how to speak more in a more refined manner. I think he would have done that just yeah. himself. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, part of part of the character that he put out to the public. I mean, he clearly wanted to be taken as somebody of gravitas and stature. Mm-hmm. He had a strong need to belong. And when he couldn't belong, he had a strong need to be powerful mm-hmm. or important in some way. I mean, we even see that kind of desperation for acknowledgement in how he interacts with Cornelius Fudge, again, going back to Prisoner of Azkaban. Mm -hmm. He's practically like preening in front of Fudge. (laughs) And I suppose that's suggestive of how he may have been with Lucius as well in a more 
in a situation where he wasn't like focused on other things. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Even just the word preening that you use, like that's like even a, f- a femme coded type word as we mm-hmm. often think of poultry as femme. And I don't know. Is it really? I, as a, somebody who studies like biology, it's mostly male birds and animals that preen in order to like attract attention. I never thought of that as being a female coded word. That's really interesting to me. Oh, well, I, again, my impressions are also very skewed towards a very weird perspective. I was reading about the concept of brooding yesterday about how describing male characters as brooding is sort of a mischaracterization because so often a brooding hen will be mm-hmm. like i am going to bite your head off if you come near my chicken oh they're so mm-hmm. aggressive they're so mm-hmm. aggressive yeah and that's that protective factor happening in I, I don't know so the sense of broodingness being associated with sort of like femininity when you know so often in literature it's used to as a masculine type trait it's weird mm-hmm. so don't take my word for it do your own <laughs> research I'm looking up the etymology of brooding now because maybe it used mm-hmm. to mean something different. I know I, I had read about broody chickens. Like you say that, yes, they, and hens specifically, are into protecting their nest and that's it. Yeah. Like, like you said. <laughs> we have chicken. We have chickens. <laughs> oh, cool. Do you have some broody ones? Not at the moment, but they have been. They don't even like to come off the nest really to eat or drink or anything. We usually have oh, to, gosh. We usually just take the eggs and let them go on about their business. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> brood is Old English um, of Germanic origin and related to the Dutch brood, and it means uh, to breed. The verb was also originally used as an object, i.e., to nurse feelings in the mind. Uh-huh. So this is why this is why uh, it would be just attributed to men oh. in like in period literatures because of course women didn't nurse feelings in their minds they wore them <laughs> on their sleeves and in fact women didn't have anything in their minds in right <laughs> because women cannot be thinkers no exactly. no no brains are too small right that's right <laughs> for anybody who's listening to this like we're being sarcastic here. <laughs> You can't see our sarcastic faces. Can't see my excellent sarcastic eyebrows. <laughs> okay. Um, I'm just looking over our, our uh, okay. I'm not sure how to pronounce her name, but Rachel and Maltese said that female heroism isn't absent in the shadow of Harry's journey. It's just in a superficially male guise. That guise being the character of Severus Snape. And Yeah. She's right. There isn't much female heroism in in the books. Mm-mm. The most I, I can mean, think is at at the end, the woman who spent her whole life being broody, you know, taking care of her family and everything. She she does take out Bellatrix Lestrange, but even that, yeah, was, but that's in like a, a protective it was like, way. Not my daughter, you bitch. Yeah. So so yeah, it's even that is still in context of being a mother and dr ziggy talked about a little bit about Beth hermione oh yeah shall i rehash that position <laughs> uh yeah so hermione i think was originally written as a stapledon character if you're interested in the definition of a stapledon go and look it up at the turkey city lexicon it's a 
essentially a character that walks on scene to deliver background or pertinent information. Hermione starts to become a major character, I think probably in the second book. In the first book, she's the, a sidekick and her job is mm-hmm. to to tell Harry that he's so smart and all her heroism comes down to books and and cleverness, I think is her exact mm-hmm. phrase. Yeah. Books and cleverness. And so I, I think we don't get Hermione as a strong female character until Emma Watson comes on scene in the real world. And then Rowling was under pressure to start to create a strong female character. And so we get Banff Hermione where in book four, she you know, magically transforms into an attractive young lady who finds at least romantic flirtation with someone who can see that she's a diamond in the rough or whatever. And then by book five, we have Hermione is starting to be uh, saucy and talking back and breaking rules and she's transforming into Bam Hermione. And I think it's really sad because we get only one kind of representation of strong female characters in Rowling's writing. And that's the quasi masculine, aggressive, confrontational type of female. Mm-hmm. And this is what, uh, you know, we can blame Joss Whedon for strong female characters, the way that they're represented in pop media everywhere. Whedon started writing Buffy as a strong female character and not to dunk on Buffy or fans of that franchise, but what we got was a action figure with boobs. And this Mm -hmm. is pretty much where female representation is sitting in, in media right now is we have people who act male and they happen to be female gendered. I think we could do more with female representation than, than uh, superheroes with boobs. Right. I concur 1000%. Yes. Another point was that Snape's character could be as a woman with little change in the text. Absolutely. Just add an S Mm -hmm. to every he said, turn it into Mm -hmm. she said, and it's right there. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So does anyone have something to say about, oh, how to describe it? How this transcoding of Snape how you feel about it personally does it make you feel about Snape differently or I've always felt more able to relate to Snape than almost any other character um Mm -hmm. in the franchise and some of that came with the attendant sense of like I could so easily put my own experiences into Snape as a person Mm -hmm. especially a teen with depression who struggled with social ostracization and being the subject of pranks in school and things like that. Mm-hmm. And it just, I think that Snape as a character that is fungible in terms of gender made made the Harry Potter series for, for me. You know, like the thing is Alan Rickman and his portrayal of Snape was very different than book Snape. Yes. You know, Alan Rickman suave and very disarming and charming and articulate and well-spoken in a very posh way <laughs> whereas mm-hmm. Snape in the books is very rough and while I was initially I initially was drawn in by Alan Rickman Snape when I went to the source material I found a lot to identify with in book Snape and I think that part of why we adore the character is a sense of projection and transference you know 
we mm-hmm. see what we want to see to some extent because there is so much fungibility. It's not like like if we went and looked at Horace Slughorn as a complementary example because we have another male potions master. Like I don't think we have that same degree of sort of fascination because I think mm-hmm. gender was much more obvious and clear and there was less sort of flexibility, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and get behind that. I'll, I'll say for myself that uh, outing myself as an oldster here, I was following the franchise before before Warner Brothers had optioned Harry Potter. And so mm-hmm. for me, Alan Rickman's portrayal of Snape was like kind of a betrayal because I'm like, this is not Snape. Mm-hmm. So I guess I've just kind of like accepted the the movie Snape as being like, you know, a different a different fanish interpretation of who this character mm-hmm. would be. Speaking as somebody who doesn't identify within Western gender binarism, Snape has always sat very comfortably for me as somebody who is male presenting, a male presenting non-male gender. Mm -hmm. So I see him as like kind of the opposite complement to myself. I suppose I'm female presenting non-female. No, that, that resonates a lot with me too. A lot of the stuff that I wrote when I was like in like early college and late middle and like late high school was stuff that really played with Snape as sort of being a symbol of uh, Jungian animism or the animus, so to speak, which that's culturally appropriated bullshit in, in and of itself. But <laughs> thanks, Carl Jung, just, you know, dicking around with all this stuff. But in any case, that, that was the, the way that I engaged with Snape as a concept and as a sort of entity in that phase of my life when I was really actively considering transition okay great okay so okay we talked about our fix so that's good your fix i'm sorry i i'm not a creative person (laughs) does anybody have any last thoughts no but you are a creative organizer and that's a critical role in fandom that we don't have enough of so i value and appreciate you 100 all righty well thank you everyone for being here the lady heliotrope and sigadinus and call Jerry. And we'll thank you. you bet. Thanks so much for having us. And I encourage everybody to go and look at the amazing trans Snape art because it is to die for. Indeed. Yes. Yeah, thank you for having me and for being, you know, wanting to have this conversation. Yeah. Well, you know, it's, it's all part of Snape and we all love Snape. And so it's another way to share the love. So, okay. Well, I guess we'll just say goodbye then. Bye, everybody. Bye. Thank you. Take care. Thank you. Bye. This is Snape-centric. I'm recording the Ficrex for Trans Snape separately. Quite a long list. And thank Severus-ish for compiling it for us. First is Case Consultation, Severus S. by Lady Heliotrope. So work in progress on AO3, eventual original character. Instead of expiring in the Shrieking Shack after losing consciousness, Snape woke up at an Aerosmith concert in Boston. In emotional freefall, Snape's circumstances conspired to connect to mandated therapy treatment. This is the story of that treatment. Very good. Highly recommended. Lady Heliotrope was a guest on on our show. And uh, we had a separate interview with her on the Snape Needs Therapy show. 
Next is Toblerone by Galgeri, who is also a guest on our show. Work in progress, last updated last night, actually. So Severus finds himself alive, mute, without magic, and in pain. He sets out on a walking trip of discovery. Harry is also suffering in the aftermath of the war. Eventually, their paths will cross. The Story of Your Bones by Runal Waslib Malfoy on AO3, complete in five chapters. To live out her days as particles of light, unthinking and unfeeling, would be ideal. Light has no boundaries, while humanity has ever so many. The war was over and she was free. Why then was she so miserable? Acceptance by Anna on the Moon on AO3, a one-shot with Remus and featuring a young trans Snape. Remus Lupin feels a fellow student crying in the bathroom and asks if he can help. Tonight will be that moment by sharing a room with an open fire on AO3. This is a one-shot featuring a transgender Severus, who is nervous about the upcoming winter solstice ball. Harry offers unconditional support. And by the same author, Be My Lucia, and It's You. Love Good's Power by Writing Angel Marie. This is a one-shot. Luna Lovegood has the power to see Severus Snape for who she truly is. The teacher and student form an unlikely friendship as Luna tries to help Snape be more comfortable within herself. The Journey by Stara 1995. Work in progress on AO3. Snape is tired of people treating him like a girl. He's a boy with he, him, his pronouns. Transition from female to male. His name in this fic is Severa and then Severus. Features transphobic Regulus and, oh, this is James plus Severus. The Princess's Tale. A one sat on Tumblr for Snape Transgender Week by Snapey Secrets. Features female to male trans Snape, whose name is Septima at first. The Darkest Side of Me by Sistine on AO3, complete in seven chapters, written also for Trans Snape Week. Severus Snape knew from a young age that their family was different. Severus knew to suppress magic at home and to suppress their gender identity at Hogwarts. Snape comes out as a transgender woman by Shining Things 44, so one shot on fanfiction.net. It was the robe Snape suspected that had allowed him to hide this from himself for so many years. Very short, but a classic. Simple, but elegant. Trans Snape Week 2020 by Masao the Dog on AO3. Eight chapters complete. This is also written for Trans Snape Week, hosted by Snape Love Post on Tumblr. Also good is Dastardly Lemon Drops, also by Masao the Dog on AO3. This is a great comic. It's work in progress, featuring a non-binary Snape with fantastic art. Okay. And also a little essay, Sever Snape as a Representation of Female Heroism by Richelin Maltese. This is a very good essay and will give you much to think about. Okay, and that's it for our Thick Ricks, for our Trans Snape show. Thank you. Bye. our discussion. Thanks again to Lady Heliotrope, Zigadinus, and Galgeri for appearing on the show. Thanks also to Galgeri for creating the great episode art. Go to our website at snapechatpodcast.com for great fic recs and more. And here we must say goodbye. 
We wish we didn't have to, but it hasn't escaped our notice that life isn't fair. Like us on Facebook, follow us on Tumblr and Twitter, email us, or leave a voicemail. We'd love to hear from you. Many thanks to Nix for continued work on our new website at snakechatpodcast.com. Be sure to check out Care of Magical Shippers podcast. Thanks for listening. Until next time, stay snarky.